Welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. Today, my guest is Dr. Rusty Reno, editor of First Things Magazine and author of Return of the Strong Gods, Nationalism, Populism, and the Future of the West. I had the privilege of meeting Rusty at the National Conservatism Conference in Miami uh, this last September, and I'm delighted to carry on the conversation today. Rusty, welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon. Uh, great to be on the podcast, and I love the title. Oh, well, I'll, uh, that, I, I can't really claim claim credit for it. It's a combination of uh, our show's sponsor, Mr. Bob Luddy, and uh, his friend Grattan Brown. They they coined the term together, and it just seems so perfect. <laughs> well, I think we should all strive to be uh, optimistic, and we can we can't avoid being curmudgeonly given the crazy times in which we live. It's so true. I, I that's really the the tone I strive for. I, I want a, a realism uh, that I think is inescapable, but yet there's there's always hope. There's there's still hope somehow that endures. Um, Rusty, before we get into nationalism and, and your book and everything else I want to talk about, um, I wonder if you could start us off by just telling us a bit about First Things and maybe uh, Father Newhouse and some of the work that you do on a day to day basis. Uh, I suspect many of my listeners know your your magazine, but uh, I'm sure some of them don't. So please do uh, tell us a bit about First Things. First Things was founded in, in 1990 by Richard John Newhouse, a prominent a prominent pastor, activist, writer, um, and uh, who became a Catholic, and then eventually a Catholic priest in the 90s, early in our early in our history, and we were founded to be the voice of religious and social conservatives contending for the future of American society. We haven't really changed. I mean, times have changed, and so. Um, aspects of the magazine have changed, but that central mission remains the same. We are where if you're a intelligent, religious and social conservative, you need to be reading first things. That's true. And you have a great knack for uh, finding uh, really good authors. And uh, I know I just, uh, one of my friends, uh, Clifford Humphrey has been been trying to break into your, your website for, for probably two or three years. He just had his first essay published uh, a couple of weeks, uh, I think last week. Uh, he was very excited about that. I love reading that one. Yes. I mean, I, I think he underestimates the ability of evangelical Christianity to be a culturally thick way of life. Um, you know, I think that many people grew up in the evangelical world. Um, they, they yearn for liturgical um, solidity, if you will. But, but I just, in my life, I've just been impressed by the staying power of conservative evangelical Christianity in America. So I think he, I think, I think he, um, he, he short sells that maybe as enthusiasm as, as an Anglican. <laughs> well, I, I have not met very many people as enthusiastic about being Anglican as Clifford Humphrey, that's for sure. Uh, but that, that's not really what I wanted to get you on the show for. I really wanted to uh, ask you a lot more about nationalism. I, I've been looking forward to this uh, for, the last, for, for several months. So uh, uh, could you start us off with uh, helping with what is nationalism? And how do you see nationalism as really kind of a, a cure or maybe a balance for some of our current social ills? Well, I mean, isms are always um, delicate, difficult, and sometimes can become extreme. So I, I like to give a common sense definition of nationalism, which is a preference or priority for the national interest in 
in, um, in, in the decisions that our leaders make. Um, in some ways, that's kind of self-evident, you know, uh, and I think critics can say, well, if that's all nationalism means, then what, how's that different from any other uh, governing um, outlook, given that it's a national government? Well, my answer to that is, well, we've been through a 30-year cycle of globalization, and um, we have heard a lot uh, of rhetoric over the 30-year period about what's good for the world is good for America. And so, you know, uh, establishing the foundations of a global market in the 1990s was going to make us a wealthier as a nation. Uh, and to some extent it has, but it's also led to all kinds of unforeseen problems, which is the um, increasing difficulty that middle-class Americans have of maintaining and passing on their prosperity to their children. And so nationalism in this context is a corrective to globalism, I would say. Uh, or to put it in cultural terms, not just in economic terms, I think it's David Goodhart is his name, the English sociologist, coined the distinction between anywhere people and somewhere people. Now, living in New York City, I'm kind of in the anywhere people world, and I'm a bit of that kind of person myself, as an academic, um, you know, the Republic of Letters and all that sort of thing. Um, but you start to have a problem when your leadership class is increasingly culturally distant from the main mass of people that they govern. I think we have that problem throughout the West and to a certain extent in the United States. And again, nationalism uh, in this context puts an emphasis on thinking about culture and cultural policies to try to re-knit the interests and attitudes of the ruling class with the interests and attitudes of the people whom they govern. Now, I find that such a such a positive vision. I mean, that that sounds very exciting. It, when I hear nationalism, my mind initially goes to sort of the early 20th century. And I'm thinking of Adolf Hitler and Mussolini and Francisco Franco and and sort of their nationalisms. But you're describing something different, like your your understanding of nationalism sounds sort of like I remember patriotism being when, when I was a kid. I mean, there was sort of an idea that, that I don't think is quite as prevalent today. But there was sort of a, an idea that uh, America is, is, a, is, is a definable thing and it's a good thing. And we should, we should love this thing that we're part of. And, and that's not necessarily to the exclusion of other countries and other nations, uh, but that we are distinct. Um, is, that, is that an accurate understanding or would you, would you nuance that any further? Patriotism is a sentiment or a virtue. Nationalism as an ism, I would say, is uh, establishes policy priorities. And again, I think it, I see it as a corrective to a overemphasis on globalism over the last 30 years. And so to your point about, um, about the flag and patriotic sentiments, I think if I was the monarch of America, one of the things I would try to get my advisors to think about is how do we inculcate in the rising generation patriotic sentiments? Hmm. Okay? So that's a policy question. How do we do it? Um, how do we encourage it? And, you know, we got to think creatively about that so that we can be a united nation with respect to our core commitments while we still fight it out in the political realm. 
Um, and I, I think so maybe constitutional literacy for high school students would be a good thing so that they're aware of the genius of our constitutional system. I think a lot of schools do do that still. Uh, you know, I'm against the 1619 project. I'm not, a, a, I'm not opposed to accurate historical knowledge about our country, which means, which means knowledge of many of our failures and flaws as a nation. But I think the emphasis in primary and secondary education ought to go to the things that we cherish and are grateful for. Not to the exclusion of things that we regret, but the preponderance needs to go to what we're grateful to, uh, for so that we can be, we can feel like we share together as a nation, big country, 330 million people. Uh, what can we share as a nation, a kind of common affirmation? Because affirmations unite people, negations divide people. And so again, the, the ism quality of the nationalism is to recognize that Given the demographic changes of the country because of the Immigration Act of, uh, of 1965, uh, because of the, um, the, the uh, decay, if you will, of patriotic sentiment due to a sort of overly zealous critical attitude towards our nation's past, that we're living in a time when we need to emphasize reconsolidation and unity uh, as a country. Oh, I think that that's a that's a great segue to uh, a quotation, a quote I wanted to ask you about from your book. Uh, that book for our listeners is The Return of the Strong Gods, Nationalism, Populism and the Future of the West. Uh, in the introduction, you write the anti imperatives are now flesh eating dogmas masquerading as the fulfillment of the anti dogmatic spirit. I, I want to start by at least commending you on a great line. That line yeah. just gripped me. I was like, oh. These, these, the flesh-eating zombie imagery was great. Um, I wonder if you could walk us through what you mean by this line. What, what are these anti-imperatives, and uh, how are they different from previous eras, and where, where do you see those in the world today? Well, okay, one of the prominent ones in the United States is anti-racism. Uh, I'm not in favor of racism. I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, in a time of very significant uh still the legacy of racial um, segregation and, uh, and uh, a, a cultural Jim Crow was still very much part of my childhood. And to be anti-racist in 1969, uh, I think was a noble thing. And I'm grateful uh, to my parents and the, my church for being very committed to the anti-racist cause. But it's not 1969 anymore. It's now 2023. And in 2023, I don't think racism makes my top 10 list of the problems facing our country. Uh, you know, we have 100,000 people dying of drug overdose death. And in, when I was young, there was a, there was a heroin crisis. And, and in the 1970s, six or 7,000 people a year were dying from heroin overdose. So now we're at 10x plus that crisis, so-called crisis level. And what is our response, government response? We legalize marijuana as a government response. I mean, it, it, it's just crazy. I mean, that's a lot of people. That's more people than died in the entire Vietnam War, American soldiers, every year from drug overdose. And so someone who says to me, racism is the greatest problem facing your country, uh, I just have to 
shake my head and think, this is a person in the grip of an ideology, what I call the open society ideology. And uh, it's not a person that's actually dealing with our country in 2023. And I could go on, there are other anti-imperatives that are all rooted in the assumption that the country is an over-consolidated, white-dominated, um, middle-class, bourgeois, consensus-dominated country. And again, I just, I gotta think, what, like, what world are they living in? I mean, we, we, we live in a country that's uh, now at peak, um, we kind of just before the immigration door was shut in the 1920s, we were at about 15% non-native born uh, residents of the country. And when I was growing up, we reached the, the lowest level ever, ever which was 4% uh, of the residents of the country were non-native born. Now we're back up to 15%. And I'm pro-immigration, so don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying immigration is bad. I'm only saying that like, in what universe can you live in where nobody is willing to sort of say, well, at a certain point, you no longer have a shared culture and a coherent country. 15% non-native born, okay, maybe that's okay. I'm actually very confident in the American capacity to, um, to assimilate. But 20%, 25%, 30%, 35%, so I've been in public debates and I cannot get those who disagree with me to agree that there is any number or any percent that would actually threaten uh, the unity of the country. They're ideologues. They cannot accept human reality, which is that human beings have to share things in common in order to cooperate uh, and also in order to accept uh, political defeat with the confidence that the person taking office is not going to destroy them. So we know that in Denmark, the center left, the center left prime minister of Denmark, uh, the woman has, his name I can't remember, has imposed pretty significant immigration limits because she believes that you have to have enough cultural coherence for people to make the sacrifices of paying high taxes to support a social welfare system. And I, surely she's right. Now maybe it's, maybe, maybe it could be more immigration than there's current in Denmark, but surely she's right. At some point people say, why am I sacrificing uh, for the sake of people who I don't even care about anymore? Um, so how do we get, how do we get a country? How do we get a population to care for each other, to care for the future that we share, our common future? And I think, again, this are, we have to have cultural policies, immigration policies, economic policies that are oriented towards a recognition that we are at risk in the global, after a long season of globalization and after being subjected to the open, open society ideology for a long, long time, we're in danger of losing the bases of having a coherent country. Hence the ism and the nationalism. We got to rebalance. You know, it's not going to go. I don't. I'm not a go back. You can't go back. Um, I'm not nostalgic. Uh, I like to think I'm realistic about, you know, having. Or, as I have said in other fora, when it comes to immigration, you know, liberalism. And I like to think of myself as having, uh, I'm not only a liberal, but I do think our liberal traditions in America are, are very much to be cherished. One of them is hospitality. 
And I think our immigration policy sh it should be seen as a kind of hospitality, but you can't be hospitable if you don't have a home. Hmm. So we need to think, how can we preserve a shared common home um, as, a, as a people? And, you know, people, then they get accused, well, you're a white ethno-nationalist. And it's like, I, again, these are people in the grips of these flesh-eating anti-imperatives. Uh, you know, I, there's nothing I can say that will dissuade them from accusing me of being a white nationalist. Hmm. You're worried about the future of the country. You must be a white nationalist. Okay, well, uh, no, I'm a person who's worried about the future of our country. Full stop. I, I, it may, I think it makes a ton of sense. I love that line, uh, we can't be hospitable without if you don't have a home. Uh, we can't just open up the floodgates and throw down all property lines. Um, as you were describing that, it seems there's a couple places you were speaking that reminded me of uh, C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man. He raises that same question of how do we how do we cultivate a love within people enough such that they are willing to, uh, I think the analogy he draws is be willing to go, he was coming right up, he wrote Abolition of Man right after World War II. He wrote, drew the analogy of how do you, how does a country without a objective system of values pull on something to summon people to be willing to die for their country that there's there's not that you can't you can't really pull on that loyalty to home if you don't recognize the value of loyalty but with that value of loyalty comes a whole metaphysical dream that seems to bring in all the traditional values as well uh, that think brings back that you were you mentioned earlier this is part of this seems to be a question of education and education policy and what what kinds of loves are we cultivating within the next generation? Are we seeking to have them love their home and love their country? Or are we fostering an inherent uh, almost hatred of, of home in the name of correcting injustice? Uh, there's, there seems like there's quite the rhetorical sleight of hand that, that sometimes happens. Well, Roger Scruton coined the term oikophobia, you know, which is, you know, um, just Greek for um, uh, hatred of home or, or, I mean, phobia is not quite hatred, but, uh, it's a, um, shrinking away from, uh, uh, any love of the home, fearful of that love. And I think that there are lots of people who are consumed by those anti-imperatives who think that if people are singing the Pledge of Allegiance in the football stadium, that they're one step away from Adolf Hitler and the Nuremberg rallies. And and that if that's your view, then really any inculcate any reinforcement of patriotic sentiments becomes a, a threat to be mm. to be um, in some way uh, overcome or avoided or censured or prohib even prohibited. Um, I mean one thing too, I think that we live in a time, I think it was Alex Reary, who's a church historian, but a, a history, history professor at Oxford, or maybe at Cambridge, he, he refers to the age of Hitler. We live in the age of Hitler. And he observes that that didn't really start until the 1960s. Hmm. When Hitler as the, as the icon of pure evil that looms over us as a constant threat comes in the 1960s. Um, yeah, it is interesting that the 
people who fought in World War II were willing to, I mean, we had a denazification program in Germany, but it pales in comparison to the kind of mm. DEI effort to root out every last trace of whatever it is that they think is the source of evil in the world. Um, so Hitler kind of comes up, and it is interesting too, I mean, whether it's Viktor Orban or um, uh, Vladimir Putin, I mean, love him or hate him, uh, uh, it's odd to see how journalists, many of whom were, you know, born 50 years after Adolf Hitler died or 40 years after Adolf Hitler died, that many journalists wind up, they just can't resist the, um, the Hitler label, the return of Hitler. And fascism, it's on everybody's lips. Even the President of the United States is talking about semi-fascism. And uh, the, the great peril of a political movement that uh, was extinguished uh, 70 years ago um, is really going on 80 years ago uh, is, is very, you know, I think listeners need to ask, huh, why, why is this language still on people's lips? Hmm. Are you, that, that's, that's maybe a, uh, I want to, I wonder if we could shift over to your, uh, your metaphor of strong and weak gods. I found that really interesting. Um, you, your, your, uh, the introduction to your book goes through a lot of different areas. I was like, I wanted to pick your brain about, uh, terms that caught my eye were particularly, uh, openness, weakness, disenchantment of public life, uh, general attempts to destroy the Western tradition, all in the name of increase in global cooperation to prevent that exact greatest possible evil of fascism from ever arising. Um, there is uh, one more quotation I want to read that I just thought was very interesting. You mentioned DEI a moment ago. That's uh, That has been, that just seems like it's crept through our entire society just within two to three years um, from, and not, not just academia, but also into corporate America as well. Uh, you wrote, Today, one of our leading imperatives is inclusion, a God who softens differences. Transgression is prized for breaking down boundaries, opening things up. The free market promises spontaneous order, miraculously coordinating our free choices, also without an authoritative center. Uh, denigrating populist challenges to the political establishment as, as spasms of a tribal mind is a reductive critique that disenchants. How does all of this kind of work together to sort of uh, in the name of preventing a great evil, simultaneously dissolve the very things that would bind a society together and define it uh, in contrast to a different society. Well, I guess this is where the strong gods metaphor can be helpful. Um, I draw the term from Emile Durkheim. I don't think he uses the strong gods. Does he use strong gods anyway? He talks about the gods. And what he means by that are not pagan deities but rather it's a term of art. He's a sociologist, a term of art for shared love, shared commitments. Mm. So the strong gods are the things that can, can, that can evoke in us a spirit of devotion and even a spirit of sacrifice. So what am I willing to sacrifice on behalf of? That's a strong God. These are the lo strong loves and loyalties that rouse us um, and unify us also because we if we share those loves then we're we have a deep trust uh, that the other person 
is after what I'm after, is devoted to what I'm devoted to. The consensus view after 1945, the end of World War II, was what I call the post-war consensus. This consensus held that the disasters of really the entire 1914 World War I through the turmoil of the interwar years and then to the war itself in, in 1939, that this disaster in um, Western history was caused by overdevotion. Over people were overzealous. People were uh, people were they had they got carried away by their collective passions. Mm. And so after the war, the consensus was we need to guard against this possibility. And I chart in the book the very nuanced and balanced approaches that were taken by establishment liberals in the 1950s um, to balance enough authority to sustain the norms that unify us as a, as a people while creating space for critical questions, uh, dissent, deviance, uh, and so forth. So they tried to find the right balance between these two. But the, so all of the prestige went to the side of questioning, opening up, and transgressing. And so that's why I say the 1960s was really not um, revolutionary. It was uh, the kids telling the parents, um, you're hypocrites, and we want, we want to be true to these principles of the open society. And so they insisted on no compromises and supercharged the open, critical, disintegrating, uh, transgressing side of this balance between authority and, um, when we say authority and individualism, maybe we put it that way. Um, and so everything went to the side of individualism and a kind of um, atomizing of, uh, of all these consolidating authorities. We're pretty well along in that project. And so we have a paradoxical moment in which the establishment in America is committed to disestablishment and the cultural authorities are anti-authoritarian. Um, so we can get a Met Metropolitan Museum of Art Gala, you know, with a uh, representative Ocasio-Cortez, you know, and it's trans, it was, it's transgression. I can't remember it was transgendered, whatever. And so you have like, this, it doesn't get more establishment than the board of trustees of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So the super rich, super powerful, super establishment people in America are committed to an ideology of kind of perpetual cultural revolution. Hmm. And that's why I think we've come to the end of the post-war consensus. This is totally unworkable. Um, and the DEI authoritarianism is, it reflects the fact that, you know, an establishment always imposes the consensus. And the consensus is we should have no authoritative consensus. Right? You know, <laughs> that's why the diversity, everybody has to affirm diversity. Well, what about people who think differently? They're not included. They're not included. So every college freshman is aware of these contradictions in, in the consensus of our time, the dominant consensus of our time. And, you know, you know most college students roll their eyes and just go along, uh, you know, just like so in some ways, we're back to the 1960s, you know, where the most kids, you know, okay, well, we, 
whatever the tensions are in the post-war consensus, I'm not going to deal with it. I'm just going to hunker down, get my job, and you know, try to lead lead my life as best I can. Given you just tell me what the rules are, and I'll I'll follow the rules. And I think most people in university today are the same way. You know, the DEI stuff. Okay, that's the rules. You got to talk that way. I'll talk that way. Just let me move on in my credit, you know, on my career path. But there are always creative people on the outside who are questioning it, mm-hmm. and uh, that's why I think that. Um, more and more people are realizing that there's just something really dysfunctional. Um, mm-hmm. And there are people on the left, you know, who say, well, we just haven't gone far enough. You know, we haven't broken through to the utopia of where everybody can be, everybody can be affirmed in exactly the way they wish to be affirmed. That's, I think, the DEI utopia. Um, everybody can, no, nobody has, there's no hierarchy in there's no normal abnormal. Um, everybody, everybody can invent their lives as they see fit, and they can command other people to affirm their lives as they've invented them. So it requires a tremendous authoritarianism to impose that. But as I say, it's the god of weakening, mm. um, and it's not a, that's not necessarily a weak god, but it's because it's obligatory. We all have to get in on the project of deconstructing, mm-hmm. dismantling, critiquing, um, transgressing. Thinking of that reminds me of uh, two different students I've met in recent years, both from the same university who, I won't name either student or the university, but they both came to the same program. Uh, both applied for, for jobs at my school, but they came, they, they appear to be just drastically different one applicant had recognized the existence of uh well we'll stick with dei as a a logo for a name for kind of all of it uh recognized the existence of that movement in in the uh the history department and consciously embraced a catholic identity instead and that that catholic identity had enough resources within it that this individual was able to really still get excellent academic training while filtering out all of the garbage. Um, the second individual uh, just straight up embraced that, what I would call that, just that DEI garbage. Uh, that individual had a uh, diversity statement that was about eight paragraphs long. And mm-hmm. in that statement explained that uh, the favorite method of grading was to ask students about prior exposure to Latin and Greek, and then design a tailored grading scale based on how many minutes were spent on language flashcards to, uh, in order to study classics. It just seemed like so much hogwash. And on the one hand, the, the first individual had a very strong grasp on the actual academic discipline that this individual was interviewing for. Second individual that, that this I think is interesting in the, the softening effect you're describing was very present. It was really hard to pin down what exactly do you know well enough to be able to teach. Well, but if if you want a world where there are no hierarchies, there have to be no standards. So standards, because some people meet them, some people don't. And so you want to have if you want to include everyone, you have to have flexible standards where they're flexible to the point of being ultimately non-existent. Um, you know, like I say, it's a paradoxical time. I mean, that's a very strong and 
almost totalitarian imperative. Uh, and it has to be totalitarianism because it's, it, it's utopian. Um, in other words, it has to, you have to get rid of private property. You mm. have to prohibit private property in order to have genuine communism. So you have to expropriate in order to get a situation where the private property no longer has it, does its pernicious evil work. So you have to get rid of standards in order to get into this world where everybody can be included. Um, and then you have to obviously, you know, excommunicate or another way, other some other way, discipline the slackers who are still imposing standards. What's wrong with these people? Don't because you know if, if one person owns private property, that's a seduction to everybody else. If one person imposes standards in your department, that person is potentially, you know, going to seduce the students into thinking that there are such a thing as standards. So you have to get rid of, you have to be, you have to, you have to, you have to stamp out all the heresies. Uh, people think it's like religion and no, it's much worse. A religious person knows ultimately that God is in charge. And moreover, uh, you know, the heresy is punished, uh, right, to protect, um, you know, to protect the truth, but ultimately God is perfectly capable of protecting his own truth, so to speak. And it puts a limit on what religious people, in, on our totalitarian tendencies, which may lurk in everybody's heart, but it puts a limit on them, the transcendent character of the thing that we're loyal to. Loyal to. But if you're a political utopian, it's up to us. There's no God that's going to ensure that this is going to happen. It's up to us. Now, sometimes they talk about the arc of history, and that's a way of, of um, um, kind of saying that's going to happen no matter what. But still, human agency rotates to the center that where divine agency used to be. And I think this is why secular utopianisms give birth to very ruthless totalitarianisms in a way that um, religious religious regimes, however brutal they may sometimes be, don't don't evolve to such a extreme degree. So you see all of these things kind of working together, if I'm if I'm understanding this correctly, that there's a post-war consensus rough, uh, in the aftermath of World War II that's looking at dissolving strong responses and that sees that strong engagement as with the enemy but we replace that strong engagement with a softening and a, a loosening that really de that decenters civilization western civilization in a way but people are always looking for a replacement so that I, that dream of a political utopia kind of be, fills the gap of that center that used to be filled by god by the tradition by kind of that general centre that uh, that center of, of strong loves and that this is why we this is why we keep having socialism coming around like it keeps being that that goal of getting rid of anything left that could be a strong center commanding people's loyalty and love is that yeah the open society the open society project is a project hmm. and satisfied it's like idolatry Idolatry is, it's, I mean, St. Augustine famously writes at the beginning of his confessions, my heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. 
And so there's a deep-seated human desire, the need to serve and not to, to serve. And so we're always casting about for transcendent projects. And deprived of religious ones, we can often make a, make a religion of our political commitments. And these utopian political projects, not accidental that they emerge in secular modernity as a, as a surrogate, um, as a surrogate uh, for the transcendent longings that we would otherwise satisfy through, not just through religion, but also historically through philosophy for elites. Or contemplation of truth and things like this can be very satisfying even for a non-religious person. But the open society imperative is a, is a project. And my argument in the book is that it is the dominant project in the post-war West. Mm. Um, and that it's come to a dead end. And, you know, um, I mean, the paradox is if you can't have strong, if strong loyalties and devotions are the source of um, totalitarianism, you can't have strong loyalties and devotions, not even strong loyalty and devotion to the open society project. Hence the paradoxical nature of our time. We have on the one hand, this kind of ferocious political correctness, and the other hand, a kind of almost a bottomless cynicism. Hmm. So I, you know, let's say that you're a senior at some fancy pants university, and uh, you know, you're a women's studies major, and you know, you went to Washington for marches and you're, you, you call for radical transformation, not just of society, but even of what it means to be a man or a woman. And then you're all in on that. So that's your sort of political fever. And then you also apply for a McKinsey consultantship. And it's like, what? How does this fit together? I mean, the radicalism with the incredible conventionalism of management mm. consultant and so I, I look at young people and I feel like they they're they are they are they 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 have both of these elements. They're subjected both these elements: the pointlessness of it all, the incredible cynicism, and it's and also the kind of feverish political utopianism. Mm. Um, so that's why I, I mean I can't promise to tell you which is going to win out, uh, <laughs> but I do. The argument of the book is the stabilizing factor. And human society are the strong gods, the things that are worthy of our loyalty and mm. our devotion. Those provide stability and orientation for our lives. Uh, my shorthand is faith, flag, and family. The three Fs, faith, flag, and family. Flag means more than just national, but it could also mean regional and local mm. uh, loyalties and commitments and and loves and uh but yeah faith family and flag so i think we should if we want to be responsible members of our society politically if we want to be responsible socially we should be in the business of trying to encourage the influence of these strong gods uh, on on the lives of our, ourselves obviously and 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 our fellow citizens you know, does that mean, you know, Torquemada or Savonarola? I don't think so. I mean, we have a constitution, separation of church and state. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't 
um, in gentle ways encourage these things. Mm -hmm. Difference between there's a difference between encouragement and coercion. Um, you know, I think we should have, you know, in the state of North Carolina, where you are, Josh, it's not impossible that school districts could have mm -hmm. mandatory biblical literacy for high school seniors. Mm -hmm. It's not about faith. It's not about, this is a foundational document yep. in our Western culture. Um, it's, it's always worth knowing. Uh, it's, it's, good, it's good to know more stuff. But also, I just think it would be useful for young students, for young people to be exposed to any kind of literature that has the elements of the transcendent mm -hmm. in it. And the Bible's easier than Plato's dialogues. <laughs> well, it's certainly easier to, uh, well, I don't want to say easier to, to interpret correctly. I, I don't know. There, there's this, it's more accessible. Remind me that it's, poss it's always possible to misread things. It's, but... a, it's more accessible. I mean, look, you know, the book of Leviticus is not accessible. Uh, I think the oh, well, John, books, John is yeah, Isaiah and Jeremiah actually are hard because you need to know a lot in order to get it into them. But I think the I think that um, the Abraham story cycle, Abraham to Joseph, for that matter, Abraham to Sinai. Yep. You could teach people, you know, from Genesis 12 to Exodus 20. It's a continuous story. Uh, and story is a much more accessible for most people than is argument and dialectic. Uh, and then, of course, the gospel stories um, are, again, accessible. Uh, so I, 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 I don't, I just think it would be good for young people to have education that touches on transcendent questions, that the God, that the God word is in, in the mix. I don't want public school teachers evangelizing. I don't want, um, you know, I don't want, you know, uh, religious observance to be imposed on any American. Um, that's not the same. I mean, to, to require biblical literacy is not the same as to uh, compel people to go to church. Um, also, I think that I'd like to see the school prayer cases from the early 60s overturned. Um, I think uh, a moment of silence, anodyne ecumenical prayer to start the school day would be useful for, again, to remind young people that there is an element of life that goes beyond the imminent. There's a transcendent, there are transcendent questions, there are transcendent realities. Um, you know, this is something that all cultures historically have agreed upon, even though we've, our cultures have intensely debated the nature of the transcendent. Um, so, so those are the kinds of things that, that I think, as well as the patriotic things we discussed earlier. And then family as well. This is an area where public policy can make a difference, mm -hmm. to encourage marriage, to encourage um, uh, fatherhood, motherhood. I think these are areas that are really worth us thinking about. How can we encourage that? I think people who are married and, and, make, and start families, they're more anchored in life. Um, they're, they're more stable. Um, less likely, I think, to be swept up into various manias of the moment. Um, I think that's good for the future of our country. We, we're going through difficult times. We're polarized. Things can be very shrill. The more people who are well anchored, uh, 
the more stable we're going to be as we face uh, various challenges in the coming coming decade. There's a lot of wisdom in uh, everything you're saying. I think there's you're, you're laying out like a, a very compelling vision for for really taking us back to a, a modern version of what I think Aristotle was describing. Um, I, I know this from Lewis's Abolition of Man, but I think it's in the Nicomachean Ethics, but he talks about the goal of education being to learn to love that which is worthy of love and to hate that which is worthy of hate. And my, when I tell my students that, they usually, of course, object who defines love and hate. And there are, of course, places where we can we can disagree on what truly is counts in each category. But I think there's a lot of things that every rational, reasonable person recognizes. Uh, we should love keeping our word more than we love lying. We should hate deception. We should hate fraud. Uh, we should love the idea of uh, individual liberty. We should probably hate tyranny. Uh, we should hate usurpation of power. There's all kinds of things that are pretty objectively clear. And really, I think the goal of education done rightly is to take young adults who are growing into their intellectual inheritance and help them with all the tools of the past and wisdom and insights of previous generations, help them see what is worth loving and worth preserving and help them see what is not in, in the world that they're inheriting. Um, You're mentioning the biblical literacy. I, uh, I just want to make a shameless plug for, uh, for my school, Thales Academy. Uh, we, we are a uh, non-sectarian school. We don't have any particular religious creed that we all adhere to. Uh, but we do work into our curriculum in both sixth grade and ninth grade uh, readings from Genesis. Uh, in our ninth grade history sequence, we do read selections from the book of Exodus, and we weigh the historicity of Exodus. And uh, we, given that we can, uh, as students read that in literature or in history class, they're reading uh, the Homeric epics. And so we're looking at the ways that the story civilizations tell about themselves uh, the, the factual historicity is one question, but the imaginative impact of that mythopoeic story is a totally different question. Uh, whether or not Moses literally stuck his staff in the Nile and it turned to literal blood, that's a different question. The fact that the Jews founded their civilization on the story of God's deliverance, that the way that shapes their culture is a profound influence. Uh, and we also, of course, in 10th grade, we read the Gospel of John and occasionally selections to us the New Testament. And we find that it has that exact effect you're describing. It it gives students certain vocabularies and certain images to process parts of life. And it also has an amazing effect when they get to uh, American founding documents in both eighth grade and 12th grade. Uh, they, they bring to Jefferson's uh, uh, these inalienable rights that are given by God an understanding of uh, even though Jefferson's a deist, he is thinking of the God of the Bible. He's not thinking of some amorphous philosophical, it's, it's not Anselm's greatest possible being. It's, it's, it's specifically the God of the Bible who created all things, who gives these human rights. And it lets it helps situate that conversation as we look at the development of what has kind of grown up through the ancient Near East, into Greece and Rome, into Christian Europe, and now is flourishing in, in the American experiment. And it really allows that 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 it also gives students a whole new appreciation for just how central questions of religious freedom are to American history. Uh, you, you can't look at colonial America without looking at differences between Protestant and Catholic colonies. And then the importance of that as you're framing the Constitution and getting the Bill of Rights established and the shocking idea that you didn't actually have to uh, pass a religious orthodoxy test to hold public office like. 
our students always are amazed, like, wait a minute, that 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 was a new idea at one point. And we're like, yes, yes, that was that was different once upon a time. Uh, so I think the that idea is crucial that there's so much of both literature and history that's inaccessible to students if they don't have a grounding in the text of the Bible. Uh, if they don't know the the basic Psalms and Proverbs, they miss so many allusions that are scattered throughout literature and even pop culture. My uh, I'll just toss a, a podcast nod to my favorite uh, death metal band, Metallica's version of the 23rd Psalm. It's epic. Um, oh, I had no idea. Uh, yeah, I, I was just curious. I found it on YouTube. I was like, oh my goodness, this exists. It's amazing. Uh, and uh, on the your family policy point, that's something I've been very interested to kind of learn more about. That's uh, that was something new for me, at least at, at NatCon, it was meeting conservatives who were willing to think and talk about how could we actually use the apparatus of the state towards good rather than the apparatus of the state always being bad. And the idea of, of, of structuring not to require or force, but to incentivize family creation, I think is really interesting. Um, yeah, as I we it. I mean... I, I, well, I that would be a grotesque violation of human uh, dignity to force people to, to uh, on the most intimate questions of their lives. Um, but yes, obviously, you can create the conditions um, that, are, that are more hospitable towards marriage and children. And you can also create conditions that are more hostile to marriage and children. It's, mm-hmm. Look, if tax rates can influence entrepreneurship, uh, then surely tax rates can also influence um, um, marriage and the other decisions in life about things like marriage and and having children. Gary Becker famously in the 1960s wrote about the economics of marriage and family. And you can criticize Becker for, you know, turning these questions into questions of utility. But there's something useful about it, which is to remind us that uh, there is no, there's no um, Berlin Wall between economic life and cultural life. Mm-hmm. That the economic, you know, my, my free market friends like to say, there's never been a human society without markets. This is a riposte to the socialists. And I say, yeah, absolutely true which is a good indication that, you know, that our economic life and our cultural life are not distinct. They're, they're always intertwined. Um, and so how we, economic policy will influence uh, cultural matters and vice versa. You say some eminently quotable things, Rusty. I'm trying to jot down quotes as we go. You're, you're, you have a great knack for a, for a phrase. Um, as we as we draw this to a close today, I wanted to ask you about uh, the uh, National Conservative Statement of Principles. Uh, I, I saw your name there on the, as uh, among several other signatories. Um, could you walk us through your connection to that organization and what is it about it that you find appealing? And does national conservatism, in as much as it can be called a movement or or maybe a, an umbrella, uh, perhaps does does it align with your vision of strong loves? The National Conservatism Movement is really the brainchild of uh, Hiram Hazone, who's a friend of mine. And uh, Hiram and, and other people involved in, in the 
in the organization. You know, one thinks of Chris DeMuth, who's taken on a very important role. He may be president of the National Conservatism Conference Committee. That uh, all of us have misgivings about what goes under the name of neoliberalism. And I, and I see that as the post-Cold War consensus uh, about um, globalization and the expansion of prosperity through through your know, dramatic um, increase in mobility of, of, of goods, labor, and capital. Um, and so Hiram knows that I have those misgivings and one reason he invited me to participate in, in the National Conservatism uh, Project uh, and the Edmund Burke Foundation, which is the sponsoring entity for the annual conference. Fantastic. And also the conservative side is, I think it's been a long, it's been a core element of the First Things project that a free society and a free economy um, depends upon kind of the rooted and strong moral traditions of, of the American people. Mm. So we've seen ourselves as we've got to nurture the moral character to use our freedom uh, properly. And that if you if those go out of balance and if you if those if those institutions, not all of which are religious, but which institutions are often the most uh, effective at inculcating virtue, that freedom misused, uh, well, either to harm others or to harm yourself, self-destructive behavior, invariably calls forth the action of the state to remediate and protect. And so, a limited government requires people capable of self-limitation, uh, moral self-limitation. And so that's why the National Conservatism Project, the conservative side of it, really has to do with renewing um, sources of moral authority in our in our society. Uh, and again, you know, everybody who dis disagrees, many people disagree with us. You know, we're we're totalitarians in the making, authoritarians. Uh, no, we envision our country was able to maintain its liberal traditions, operate within the Constitution, elect people to government with a great deal of freedom. Uh, personal freedom, while at the same time um, supporting and sustaining these moral institutions. Uh, so these are perfectly compatible um, aspects. The very best of uh, our American history has been um, a combination of uh, strong, strong civic institutions and um, and a vibrant free economy and and uh, constitutional freedom. Well, that's a that's a fitting place to uh, to close today. I want to read one more quote that I just thought was so great uh, in, in in your essay or your introduction. Uh, you tell us our time, this century, begs for a politics of loyalty and solidarity, not openness and deconsolidation. We don't need more diversity and innovation. We need a home, and for that, we will require the return of the strong gods. Uh, Rusty, thank you for uh, coming on the show today, and uh, thank you for encouraging us to think about the nature of our loves and whether we love strongly or weakly and really what leads best to individual and national flourishing. Well, thanks for having me on the podcast. And I'm so gratified my dog was quiet the entire time. <laughs> it's amazing. I, I did make a note that at 12 minutes, Rusty's dog appears. That's going to be a great <laughs>
Well, listeners, thank you for joining us for another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. My guest this episode has been Dr. Rusty Reno, editor of First Things Magazine and author of Return of the Strong Gods, Nationalism, Populism, and the Future of the West. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Until next time, seek the good, discover the true, You've and love to another beautiful. episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. The Optimistic Curmudgeon is a project of Thales Press. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star review and share it with your friends. You can find us on three major social media platforms. Search for The Optimistic Curmudgeon on Facebook and LinkedIn, and find us on Twitter at the handle at TheOptimisticC3. This episode was edited and produced by Madison Kay, audio engineer for The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Until next time, seek the good, pursue the true, and love the beautiful.